to Art Hour. This is your host, Eric Woodard. This week, we will hear six stories from Pivot Spokane's storytelling contest on the theme of fish out of water. Members of the community told true stories without notes about times they have felt like a fish out of water. If you would like to hear more about Pivot, search Pivot Spokane on social media, or you can get on their email newsletter list by emailing pivotspokane at gmail.com. If you like this show, you can find the videos for these stories by going to pivotspokane.com. While you're there, leave a like or a comment. Now, on to the show. Our first storyteller is Alyssa Basher, who tells the story of her dental nightmare. When I was 22 years old, I decided it was strange that I now had my undergraduate degree, but no primary care doctor and no dentist and very little concern for my physical health or well-being. And that the real adult, the real adult thing to do was to get myself all of the above. So I started with a dentist. Now the problem was that I also uh, had a real minimum wage job. So my real pool of options was real small and what was available with Medicare. So I kind of rolled the die and picked a dentist at random for my first adult medical appointment, making my own medical decisions, living life in the real world. I stormed in with all the bravado of a 22-year-old who has never been scarred by a traumatic dental experience. Now, the dental office was nothing special. The dental assistant, she really put the curt in courteous. And the dentist walked in. This man is 70 if he's a day. And he's got a hunch. Not like, I've got strong suspicions about your cavity case, but like a literal physical hunch which could be okay. Maybe it's a result of like a lifetime tooling around in people's mouths. Maybe it's just an indicator of his vast expertise. Maybe it would have been fine. Except that he also had tremors. He had shaking hands. I had a cavity in one of my front four teeth. The nurse had numbed me up and the doctor was coming towards me, coming in for the drill with the drill and his hands were shaking as fast as the drill was spinning. And he was coming towards the wrong side of my mouth. So I, I panic at this point. I'm shaking as badly as he is. My heart's pounding and the voice in the back of my head is going, get out of here. This is scary. This is uncomfortable. There's no way that this is going to end well. But the other voice in the back of my head is going, that would be weird. Don't leave. And you're already numbed up. Are you going to like limp to your car with drool coming out of your mouth? Don't be a drama queen. This is going to be fine. He's a dental professional. And then the dental assistant pops in and says, doctor, the cavity is in her other incisor. <sighs> oh man. See the drama queen. Don't be a drama queen voice goes, we told you it's all okay. It's all going to be okay. So he drilled it. And he filled it and he tore my gums all up. And when I mentioned it, I said, doctor, I think you tore my gums up. I can feel them bleeding. He goes, well, yeah. Haven't you ever had a filling before? 
So I leave. I leave wanting never to come back and see this place again. And two days later, I come back because the filling fell out. And I did some hard math on this one. I could go to a new dentist. I'd be rolling the die again, but maybe I'd like them better. I find it hard to believe I would have liked them worse, but I bet they would make me pay for the whole kit and caboodle. Or I could go back to this dentist's house of horrors and maybe they would fix their mistake for free. So me and my empty pocketbook marched back in, opting for free, with uh, two days, two days after the original procedure. The doctor doesn't recognize me at all. I explained to him that his filling had fallen out. He explained to me that I must have done something wrong because his fillings don't fall out. <sighs> Grinned and bared it, got it all fixed up, left, never to return. Except I could feel that there was something wrong. I had had, had fillings before, and none of them had been sensitive quite like this. But I give it a few days, and then a few days turns into a few weeks. And then I realize I need to make an appointment with a different dentist, because fool me twice, but not three times. So I make a new appointment and go in. We do a full set of scans. He comes back and he says, here's the problem. The filling is so big that it is sitting directly on your tooth root. And this means that anytime any sensation passes that tooth, pressure, heat, cold, that sensation is transferred directly through the filling up into your nerve endings, like little electroshocks. I said, awful, what can we do? He said, absolutely nothing. You will be in pain, and when that pain becomes unbearable, you'll get a root canal which is basically where they drill in and scrape out all the nerve and tissue in there so you don't feel anything in it ever again. <sighs> Time to keep grinning and bearing it. So I did for the next six months, except this time I was grinning with my mouth closed because it was winter and the cold air hurt my tooth so badly I couldn't open my mouth outside. And I was marveling at the little ways that we maneuver our lives to hold space around things, especially painful things, especially things that are not okay. I drank all my liquids out of straws. And when I was out with friends drinking beer in bars, drinking out of a straw, I would say that it was because it got you drunk faster because I thought that was cooler than saying, oh, I have a debilitating tooth pain. I stopped singing in the shower, I stopped singing in cars, and eating hot sandwiches. You just, you get used to things. Until one day it was too painful to get used to. It was too painful to bear. It was too painful to grin and bear. Early in the week, I woke up twice, clenching my mouth so hard that I had blood from that tooth running down the side. It was this hot, spiky, throbby, aching, itching, mind-numbing, skull-splitting pain that radiated throughout my whole mouth that gave me chills. Um, and still, and still I had this voice in the back of my mind saying, yeah, but is it unbearable? Can you bear it? When I started getting sent home from work because I was too distracted by the pain, I decided to go see an emergency dentist. The emergency dentist did scans. 
and then told me he saw absolutely no reason I should be in any pain at all. He could refer me to a specialist. It would take a few weeks. I should try ibuprofen in the meantime. Well, in the meantime, I wasn't sleeping. And I wasn't able to eat anymore either. So I tried one more last-ditch roll of the die and found the dentists that saved me, my savior dentists, who put me out of the worst pain I have ever been in in my entire life. From this tooth that had gone necrotic. It was dead and rotting and infected in my mouth. And they caught it and they fixed it. Eight hours, four appointments, and $5,000 later. And now I've got this beautiful fake tooth that hopefully you didn't notice. And the trick of it is, I can still feel it sometimes. The pressure, like a little ghost echo of that pain. But I like that. Because I had no idea how hard I was going to have to fight to be heard and to be believed about what I was experiencing in my own body. So this little throb is a nice reminder that no matter who I'm talking to, no matter their expertise, I am the expert on my own body. And I have a voice in the back of my head that's worth listening to. Thank you. Our next storyteller is Karen Darling, who tells a story about a crazy trip to Mexico. Hi, my name's Karen, and this is my fish out of water story. So in um, 1973, I think it was, my boyfriend Steve and I went to Mexico, and uh, he wanted to drive his car down there, and it was an old beat-up Volvo uh, 122S, and uh, everybody made jokes that we'd never even get out of town, but he was prepared. He'd borrowed some parts from his friend Mark, who taught him how to work on Volvos, and he felt all ready to handle anything. So we took off. We went down to Mexico. We had a wonderful time. We got as far as San Blas, and then it was time to head back because Steve had a job with the Forest Service that paid for his college. He fought fires in the summer and uh, he needed to get back by a certain date or they'd give the job away. And um, so we're driving back and we get a little ways out of town and the car starts overheating. So he um, gets out, realizes it's the water pump and he says, no problem, I have one in the trunk. So he throws in the new water pump and we take off and we get a little ways down the road and it does it again. And now he's really concerned because there's something wrong with this water pump and now we're shit out of luck. So um, there's, you know, a guy there selling birds and uh, there's really nothing around and we don't know what we're going to do. And our friend that we met, uh, Peter from Toronto, is driving by and he pulls over and, um, and Steve tells him the story and they decided the best thing to do would be for me to go with Peter to Mazatlan and um, and look for a you know a water pump at a you know car dealership or body shop in Mazatlan and he'll try to meet us there. So um, I don't want to leave him there. I feel scared about leaving him there. Uh, we don't have cell phones or anything, and we're going to meet at this place called the Shrimp Bucket, 
which is notoriously cheap in Mazatlan, I guess. Peter knew about it. So as we drive away, I'm waving goodbye and I'm worried because this guy's, you know, trying to sell Steve parrots, perrota, senor, and he's sadly waving and I'm just hoping everything's going to work out. So as we are driving away, um, uh, we come around the corner and there's uh, Federali standing in the middle of the road with machine guns and they make us get out of the car and they proceed to tear the car apart looking for drugs, I'm sure, because we were hippies. And um, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, if something like this happens to Steve, I don't know what's going to happen. So I was had a big headache. We arrive in Mazatlan and we drive from car dealership to you know body shops looking for Pumpti Aguas and uh, they don't even know what a Volvo is so we're kind of wondering what's going to happen but um, eventually Steve arrived at the shrimp bucket and he had paid somebody to store the car and just hoped that it would be okay and um, you know proceeds to tell me that you know he can't leave the country without the car and I have to go to um, back to the states to pick up a water pump from a Volvo dealership and um, have very little time to do it and we don't have much money. So I um, end up taking this bus back to the States um, to, I think, Nogales, Arizona, and I get there late and I know I have to save money, uh, have money for the part and uh, to fly back. Um, and so I when I get to um, Nogales, I took all the crackers in the uh, bus station and shoved them in my purse, thinking that would be my food for the next day or so. And I found a flop house um, that was just a few dollars, you know, to spend the night, but it was um, pretty bad. And there were a lot of, um, you know, uh, pretty sketchy people and um, a lot of veterans that had walkers and some people, you know, um, a lot of drinking and, and drugs, and I'm thinking, oh, great. So I um, get my room, I go up there, it's, it's pretty bad, and I decide to go down to the lobby to watch some TV, and as I'm sitting there, uh, somebody approached me, um, kind of asking me how much I charge, and I realized they think I'm a hooker, and I'm appalled, and I'm thinking, geez, I, you know, I think I could do better than this place. So I go up the stairs to my room, and as I'm going up the stairs, I smell smoke, and I find a burning mop in a bucket. Somebody had thrown a cigarette in there, and I, you know, stamp out the mop, and then I go to the lobby and tell the manager, you know, there's a fire in the stairwell, and what had happened, and he said, well, he was really wasted, and he, he said, boys will be boys. So now I'm really scared that I'm going to die in this fire trap, so I call Steve, collect at the shrimp bucket and start to tell him what's happening and he says Karen this is costing money and he slams the phone down and now I'm crying and I call my sister Val and tell her the whole sad story and um, she proceeds to call me down and um, I made it through the night I got up super early and there were no there was a taxi strike I remember that and I had to just get a get a ride with somebody I think they called them gypsy cabs then but it was probably like uber now um, and he got me to the body shop and then to the airport and um, I flew home back to um, Mazatlan and uh, Steve was waiting for me and I'm sure he's gonna just think I'm brilliant you know I've done all of this and and I succeeded in my mission and he grabs the part and runs and jumps on a bus and goes down to that godforsaken place to fix the car so I'm waiting at the shrimp bucket and um, he manages to take care of it and he fixes the car and he drives up and he picks me up and now we're on a mission to get home and uh, we start driving and then he 
becomes very sick. He's got Montezuma's revenge or uh, parasites or something, and he's hallucinating. And so I'm driving, trying to get us back, you know, and we don't have any money. And um, he started to feel a little better as we were getting closer to home. And and uh, I was begging him, you know, to buy some food. But he said, no, we, can, we need it for gas. And so anyway, we finally got back. And um, Steve was telling the story to his friend Mark, you know, about the parts. And um, and uh, and oh, I remember, too, when we, we got home, we had like six dollars left. And I said, see, we could have I could have gotten that bucket of chicken, damn it. But um, anyway, we survived. And I think I you know, could miss a few meals. But um, he told his friend Mark about the parts, you know, and, and then Mark proceeded to say, oh, well, there were two boxes in the garage. You know, one had the good parts, the other one had the defective ones. And uh, Steve obviously had helped himself to the defective parts and was quite upset that Mark didn't tell him there were two boxes. So that did um, put a little strain on uh, their friendship. But um that's my story about fish out of water. And um, I love Pivot. Thank you for this opportunity to tell stories. I love hearing everybody's stories. And um, everybody stay home and stay safe. And uh, we'll all be able to get together again and tell our stories in person. So thank you. Bye-bye. You're listening to KYRS, Medical Lake Spokane, 88.1 and 92.3 FM. Hang out with me, Jukebox Jenny, on Sundays from 6 to 8 p.m. to hear America's very own music, the blues. Let me help you shake the trouble out with a mix of funk, R&B, and blues from Delta to Chicago. You'll hear... Don't forget to shake your rump, too. It's a cocktail that will soothe the soul. Working Woman's Blues, Sunday nights, 6 to 8 p.m., right here on KYRS. Art Hour receives support from South Perry Pizza, featuring rotating local artists and serving hand-tossed artisan pizza, beer, and wine at 1011 South Perry Street and online at southperrypizzaspokane.com. Our next storyteller is Ben Faulkner, who is really good at starting things. So my junior year of high school, I transfer schools um, to a new Catholic school, and that fall, I was very, very excited to um, start fresh and, and kind of have a new chance to reinvent myself. Um, so I, the genius 16-year-old that I was at the time, decided to lie about who I was so that everyone would like me more. Uh, a couple of years before that, I had moved to Ontario, Canada from Texas um, and back in Texas, uh, sports and athletics was a huge deal. Um, and when I had lived in Texas, I was actually, I was terrible at sports. I could never play any of the sports. I was never good. I, I didn't even bother trying out. Uh, but this was a fresh start and this was a new country. This was Canada. And in Canada, as far as I knew, people only played curling and how hard could that be? So I thought, you know what, this might be my chance. And, um, so I, I basically told everybody that I was super athletic, 
Um, and I looked around and saw that there wasn't a tennis team at this school. Um, so I was like, why don't we start a tennis team? I, and I can, you know, lead that, lead those efforts. Um, and at the time I could kind of sort of play tennis. At least I could hit a ball with a racket. I mean, I figured everything else would follow suit after that. Um, so, um, yeah, I like asked around and one of my new friends, Kayla, at the time, uh, I asked her, I was like, hey, do you know any coaches that, you know, could coach a tennis team? And she was really involved in athletics at the school. So she did. She approached a coach um, who agreed and said, yeah, we do need a tennis team. And I and I would love to, to coach you all. So um, we were super excited. I was super excited. Um, the first practice was the following week. Uh, every, all, a bunch of us showed up, you know, in our gym shorts uh, sleeveless t-shirts, socks pulled up, ready to go with our rackets. Uh, and we started off, we were hitting the balls up against the gym wall outside and it was going well. It was fun. All of the, all the kids there were like, yo, Ben, how is this? How's my, how's my swing? I don't know if it's called a swing or my thrust pitch. I have no idea. Um, how am I doing? They kept like asking for my approval and I was like, yeah, keep up the great work, bro. looks great. Um, and I would mess up a lot and I'd be like, oh, sorry, y'all, I'm off my game today, <laughs> uh, even though I had no idea what I was doing. Um, and it started out really fun. We were all having a lot of fun and we kind of were just kind of messing around and, and, and trying things out. Um, the next day or so, I guess the word must have gotten out to the larger school community that we had started the tennis team. So a couple of days later, a bunch of new kids show up to practice um, and we've, ne- we haven't seen them before. They have like sweatbands around their heads and, and wrists. They have really nice rackets. They look really athletic. Like they know what they're doing. Um, and I'm sort of like, Oh, okay. <laughs> this is going to, this is going to get interesting. So, um, we start going to the courts then up until then we had only been practicing like outside up against the gym wall, but now we're going to the actual courts to play. And it's my turn to play one of the new guys, uh, Justin. And Justin, he smiles at me um, across, uh, and I just sort of gulp. And he serves the ball, and I swear to God, I, like, shriveled up and disappeared. I don't know, really know what happened. It was just a blur. Um, and it was awful, awful mess. I had no idea how to do anything. Um and so after the game, I sort of like slumped my shoulders and hang my head low because I was like, oh shit, I done got caught. Um, and the coach, he comes up to me, it's the end of practice, and he sort of puts his arm on my shoulder and he says, Ben, I, I don't think I'm going to be able to use you this season. And I sort of stare at him and I'm kind of like, what are you talking about? I am the season. I started this season. Without me, there would be no season. I am the reason for the season, okay? (sighs) But I think I just said to him, I was just like, okay. And um, sort of walked away feeling really really bad and feeling sorry for myself. But then the coach yells after me. He goes, hey, oh, by the way, um, your mom called the school and um, she can't come and pick you up to take you to your after-school job. Um, and so she asked if somebody could give you a ride and I'm headed that way. So I, I can drive you to your job. And I swear it was at the time, the most terrible car ride of my life. So I am 16 years old, 
My face is red with shame. I'm seconds away from crying. And my coach, who has just kicked me off my own tennis team, is driving me in his car to my after-school job at the local library, where I will then go and shelve books in the silence for the next three hours all alone to reconsider my life choices. It's just beautiful. So he takes me to the library. We get there. He hands me my racket and my backpack and um, drops me off. And I go do my shift at the library. And I hide in the bookshelves. I put books on the shelves. I start to think about my feelings. Um, and I think, like, why did I tell this lie? Why did I want to start a tennis team? Why did I pretend to be somebody who I wasn't? Um, and it, looking back, it's the same reason why any kid would do something like that. I wanted to feel part of something. I wanted to feel like I belonged and that I meant something to my community. Um, so the good news is that the following year, um, I realized, okay, maybe I'm very bad at sports, but apparently I'm very good at starting them. So that year I realized, you know what? We don't have a football team either. So I campaigned and started a football team that year, even though there was no chance in hell that I would ever be able to play on it. Um, so now my old high school in Simcoe, Ontario, because of this awkward librarian kid who once lied about his athleticism and got kicked off his own tennis team, now has both a football team and a tennis team, even though there was no way I would ever play on either of them. Thank you. Our next storyteller is Travis Knott, who was our grand prize winner in our first contest. He titled his story, Bringing and Being a Fish Out of Water. Well, hello there. That's the clever saying on my shirt right now. And uh, I would back up to show you guys, but I'm all situated at my computer. I'm comfortable. I'm settled in for story time. I love story time. Makes me think about those days gone by when I certainly wasn't born yet. But Franklin Delano Roosevelt would sit down and give his fireside chats. We would all just listen. Well, not we, but our grandparents and their parents. And there was this sense of pride and excitement. And even during times of struggle, everyone would know it was going to be all right. That's what story time can be. Times of all right. And let me tell you, I've had some pretty all right times in my life. That fishing trip to Alaska, oof, that was all right. And it really sort of fits with the theme of fish out of water. I mean, we were dragging fish from two, three hundred feet down up onto our deck. We were literally creating fish out of water. And I'm sitting there a quadriplegic on the back of a 38-foot bay liner, firemen working hard around me. It's weird to have to work hard to have fun, but that's my favorite type of fun. Always has been. And watching other people, even though I can't join in the physical labor, uh, when they're working hard and having fun, that's my favorite type of fun. And there's this one moment during that fishing trip after waking up in the morning and 
having them pack me down 17 steps. Because, of course, our cabin wasn't handicap accessible. Although they could put that on the flyer now that I stayed there for a week. Handicap accessible cabin requirement must have able-bodied people to lift you all the way up and carry you back down again. Anyway, we were out on this bay liner. Beautiful day. We had caught our limit of halibut. So my chair was surrounded by flopping 36-inch fish that tasted very good, I might add. Uh, and we had to pull the anchor up. Now, the anchor had decided to catch on a rock. I couldn't see the rock, obviously. It was leagues down below us. And the firefighters kind of had to do a team effort sort of thing to get it off the rock. Well, they all went to the front of the boat. So there I am, on my own, the wilds of Alaska around me, giant mountains covered in green. It was like the first of August. I never knew so many shades of green could exist. And then there was some snow right at the top. Glaciers around the corner from us. I couldn't see those. Anyway, this was not a spot where handicap accessibility is uh, a normal thing. So I might have been the only quadriplegic to have ever been in this position. And it was quiet. The wind was blowing and oh, it was cold. It was like 55, 56 degrees, but it was lovely. And then the boat started turning sideways. Well, my chair is stable. It's a heavy piece of equipment. And when the boat started rocking, the moisture from the halibut that had been dragged out of water and put on the deck had made the deck slick. So then the boat started rocking and my very heavy chair started sliding. Just a little at first. And then it started getting a little violent. We're tipping back and forth in the waves and I start thinking, oh my god, what's going to happen? Worst case scenario, bloop, I go over the side, I die this glorious death, and uh, people write history books about me. Thankfully, that wasn't what happened. They got the anchor dragged up after two or three minutes, and they came back and found me smiling, laughing, just really enjoying life. And that was where I was supposed to be at that time. I couldn't help them. They couldn't help me. And life was okay. And I think life's going to be okay. Life's been pretty great for me. I'm going to continue to have great moments. And I hope we all do. So I'm going to log off now. I hope you enjoyed my story. Talk to you later. Our next storyteller is Susan Lundstrom, who was a fish out of water in Germany in the 90s. Hello, my name is Susan. And in 1990, I decided to travel to Germany with my young family to teach for um, the Department of Defense Schools. Now, even though I was an experienced teacher, this was totally new for me. I had no schema for the military or the military educational system. 
and I had never been to Europe before. But still, we were very eager for the new experience. So once I got to Germany and did all the paperwork and got settled in and found a place to live and um, began with, of course, my teaching, um, I knew that one of the first things that I would have to do would be to get a German license. Now, this was a, a new challenge because there are a lot of new signs. And even though I could speak and read a little German, I had taken it in high school, it still was new learning. And um, I mastered that and I really was determined to be a part of the German culture and travel and see as many things as I could, in, not only in Germany, but the neighboring countries. Um, I would venture out on the Audubon, which is another new experience. And I would think, oh, look at this open road. And I thought, boy, I'm really going fast. You know, I'm up to 80 miles an hour and there's not a car in sight. And of course, this was in my gutless wonder, my Toyota Tercel. And, and I think it probably had like about three mice that kept the engine going. And occasionally I would replace them. But I thought, look at me, I am driving the Audubon and then all of a sudden there'd be a car behind me, Mercedes or BMW, flashing their lights like, uh, you're too slow on this road, either speed up or get off the road. And I thought, wow, I'm going 80 miles an hour, isn't that enough? But anyway, I, I felt that I was learning new things. And this was an exciting time in Germany. Um, the wall had come down and um, there was a lot of new opening up of new countries to go to and they could travel over to Germany and, and that was all exciting. Also, there was um, the Gulf War, which uh, was pretty frightening for me and the military families there and that was a new experience. Again, I still was taking it all in and trying to really uh, learn new things. One of the um, things that I thought I had mastery of was the German language, like I told you. Um, but little did I realize that um, I had learned High Deutsch, or what they call Hochdeutsch, Hochdeutsch. And, and sometimes I couldn't understand what some of the people in the community were saying. I lived in, um, I taught on Gerpingen base, which was in the Schwabian Alps area. And I uh, finally discovered uh, that like in America, we have dialects, well, they have dialects too. And so I just, kept my ear tuned in and I thought, well, with time, I will, I will get all of this, but not to worry because I taught in a, a military base and everyone spoke English there. And then I also found that most of the German people 
not only could speak their native language, but they could speak English very well and sometimes uh, two or three other languages. And so I would talk to my neighbors and um, I would start to speak in English and they'd say, uh, Nein, Susan, du bist in Deutschland, sprechen Sie Deutsch, and kind of smile and laugh, which meant, you're in Germany now, you need to speak German, which helped me to learn the language even more. Well, like I said, this was an exciting time. Uh, Czechoslovakia, which it was called then, uh, opened up its borders, and our school set up an exchange with um, a school in Prague. And we were having some of our students' children going over to Prague, which my children were a part of, and some of the teachers, and I happened to be one of the teachers to go over there as well, and uh, visit and get to know their system. And um, in return, they would also send children over to us to visit sometimes, and some of their teachers. So when this was going to happen, um, I knew I was going to be host to two teachers from Prague. I quickly tried to find out as much as I could about them, uh, what grade level they taught, their names, of course, and I was wise enough to ask what languages did they speak? I discovered that one of the teachers could speak only their native language, Czech, and German. And one of the teachers could speak only Czech and French. So I knew this would be another challenge. So I invited my neighbor over who could speak German and English, and a little bit of French. So I figured maybe we could navigate through this. Well, I made a bunch of snacks and hors d'oeuvres, and I had a variety of alcoholic and non-alcoholic uh, beverages. So when they came to my house to stay, I um, offered them, what would you like to drink? And in a roundabout way, we figured out everyone kind of pointed to the champagne. They said, champagne. And I said, okay. So we started to uh, talk and one person would say something and another person would translate and around the table we'd go. Well, the interesting thing was that the more champagne we had to drink, the more fluent we all became. And uh, pretty soon we were laughing and it was like we were old friends with not a problem with communication. And even though there were many things that made me feel like I was a fish out of water in Germany, I discovered that when it comes to opening your home, opening your heart, communicating, and good champagne, that there's nothing too hard to navigate. And we all belong in the same pond together. The power of women, 
the power of communication, the power of the drink. Thank you. You're invited to cruise Americana Avenue with me, Jim Tate, in your car or at the office, each Tuesday from 2 to 4 p.m. You'll hear the best in progressive American roots music in a multitude of styles. It's Americana Avenue on your radio station, KYRS. Art Hour relies on support from listeners like you. Just $3 a month helps keep KYRS going strong, and you can help by texting Give KYRS to 44321. That's all one word Give KYRS to 44321. Our last storyteller today is Eamon Neff, second place winner from our first contest, who titled his story Out of the Water and Into the Iceland. Hi, Pivot viewers. I'm Eamon Neff. Let's get to it. In January of 2019, last year, uh, my dear friend Chris O'Donnell invited me on a two-week excursion of Iceland in January. And since I had not spent real time with Chris since high school five years prior, I jumped at the opportunity. Now, here's the thing. Chris is a young Bear Grylls. Even in high school, he was interested in hiking, in climbing, and in nature photography. And he used his college years to bolster his talent with these skills. I, however, used my college years to discover the joys of an infinite supply of cafeteria junk food, which left me extremely underprepared for the trials of an Icelandic winter. Uh, in fact, I was so underprepared that my girlfriend had to insist that I pack an insulated sleeping bag rather than my own sleeping bag, which was basically a paper sack from Albertsons. Despite my girlfriend's sage packing advice, I wasn't in Iceland for very long before I realized I was in over my head. When Chris and I first arrived in the Reykjavik airport, we hadn't slept for over 20 hours, but was Chris tired? Oh, no, no, no. He wasn't even slowing down. Immediately after we land, this guy goes out, buys us a rental car, buys us a tent, and we set off to discover the first of over 100 waterfalls that he has mapped out for us to visit in this two-week trip. Now, when Chris and I went to sleep on a hard clump of ground that night, I was uh, already a bit worried about the direction this trip was taking. I was achy, I was sore, and when I woke up in the morning, the roof of the fence of the tent was touching my face because it had snowed a full six inches during the night. Chris, of course, was infatuated with the opportunities that six fresh inches of snowfall presented for his photography, so he was a little more excited about that than I was. I reached my tipping point, or rather my breaking point, about three days into the trip during a night hike, which is a concept that I didn't even know existed until I met Chris. Um... I was sweaty, hungry, bruised, and not even halfway to the crash plane that Chris had insisted we find in the middle of the night because he knew that there wouldn't be any other tourists there to interrupt his photos. 
Um, and we had chosen to do this despite knowing that at 8 a.m. there would be a free shuttle that would walk us on over to the plane so we wouldn't have to do this long hike on the beach in the middle of the night. But Chris wanted night photos, so we were going to get night photos. Uh, we weren't hiking long before I started talking shit to myself, just stuff like, ah, you're such a fat blob, you're being useless, and I'm, I'm just muttering to the slush that's melting in my shoe. That's who I'm talking to. Um, because Chris is ahead of me. I can see him waiting for me farther up the trail. He's got his foot on a snow-covered rock, he's wearing a massive backpack filled with tripods and lenses, and he's got a giant camera clipped to his belt. He looks for all the world like Jebediah Springfield standing uh, in the middle of the field in The Simpsons. He basically looks as though he has the moon acting as his own spotlight. And... It's right here that I just started to lose it. I'm, I'm, I'm asking myself, why did I come to Iceland? Why did I come to the country that inspired Dante's chilling thoughts on Hell's Ninth Circle? Because I'm not even a fan of hiking, or photography, or ice. And I'm in Iceland. Why am I here? It doesn't make sense. So I'm kind of starting to freak out. Uh, but even before I can finish asking these questions and berating myself, um, I, I know the answer, because... The real answer is that Chris had been originally planning on taking this trip with his girlfriend, but life doesn't always work out the way you intended, and they split up, which left him with an empty seat in his car. Um, and I didn't, you know, want him to be alone on this trip, so I agreed to fill that empty seat with my portly ass. All in all, every decision was on me. But you guys, here's the thing. Chris was completely right. That airplane crash site that night was one of the most beautiful things and fascinating things that I have ever laid eyes on. How many people get the opportunity to sit on the wing of a plane and look up at every star on this side of the hemisphere? We're not talking about standard stargazing either. We are talking about 3 a.m., no light pollution, sitting in the cockpit of a destroyed plane in the middle of a beach in an Icelandic winter stargazing. That is what we are talking about, and it is absolutely one of the most stunning things I have ever gotten to experience. The beauty and magnificence of that moment redefined the trip for me. My muscles loosened up, I felt more comfortable just suddenly, instantaneously, and the negative thoughts untangled themselves in my head and wove their way out. This one shift in thinking finally allowed me to breathe again. If I had been a fish out of water up to this point, I had flopped and gasped and panicked just long enough to throw myself back into the river, and once I was there, it was good to be breathing again. Situational acceptance is a powerful thing, and I'm glad I reached it. The rest of the trip was one of the best experiences I've ever had. Uh, we met and pet wild Icelandic horses that proceeded to bite the shit out of our rental car. We caught glimpses of the astounding northern lights. We soaked in naturally formed hot springs, which sit by alongside some of the most beautiful landscapes that someone could ever imagine. Oh, and yes, we did manage to hit all of the 100 waterfalls that Chris had mapped out for us, so I'd say that was probably the big, biggest accomplishment of the trip. 
Uh, all in all, I'd say if this taught me one thing, it's that any experience truly worth having to make something really special, it has to start with some struggle, struggle and with some level of discomfort, because that will allow you to form a truly exceptional experience. I'm Emin Neff. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening. And we'll be back next week with five more stories from Pivot's Fish Out of Water Storytelling Contest. Be well. <laughs> <laughs>